All right, let's bow our heads for a second. We're going to pray. We look into this issue of truth. God, we're looking for your help. We realize that if we're going to know things, really know things about eternity, about the spiritual world, and about you, you're going to have to reveal them to us. So, Lord, would you uh, energize our seeking process? Would you enlighten our minds? And would you be bringing the truth that would set us free? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, good morning and welcome to AC3. We're in the middle of this series on truth. So last week we talked about just the idea of seeking truth and how to search for it uh, rightly. And then this week we're going to talk about what is the truth that we hold. And then next week we're going to talk about how we hold it. Like it matters how you hold your beliefs that you've come to believe are really true. And last week, you remember this, Dan introduced us to a guy uh, that kind of illustrates this whole truth business perfectly. He's now become somewhat of a famous uh, Christian apologist. He is a convert from Islam. His name is Nabil Qureshi. And uh, last week, uh, he showed us how an intellectually honest search for truth does not retreat into relativism. It can't. And actually, he says this in his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He said, if truth doesn't exist then it would be true that truth doesn't exist. And once again, we arrive at truth. There is no alternative. Truth must exist. So he launched out into an intellectually honest spiritual seeking process without a retreat, I would say a somewhat cowardly retreat into relativism, which is a self-defeating position, right? So he just said, truth must exist. I've got to go find it. So he enters into an intellectual phase, and then it moves to an experiential phase, and we'll get to both today. The first phase are gonna, is going to help us grasp what the essential truth of Christianity is. So as a devout Muslim, Nabil thought that he knew truth about Christianity. These are the truths that he assumed that he knew. He assumed he knew at least four things were true about uh, the faith of Jesus. Number one, that the Bible had been hopelessly corrupted. Number two, he believed the truth that Jesus never claimed to be God. He believed that Jesus never died on a cross. And he believed what he thought was true, that Jesus never rose from the dead. So he threw those challenges out. In his first year of college, he was a med student, brilliant guy, became a medical doctor. And um, he threw out these challenges to a well-informed Christian roommate, a guy named David Wood. You can look up this guy's name. He's also a famous apologist in his own right. And by the way, David Wood would become Nabil's best friend. So this wasn't an antagonistic thing. They loved each other, and they sparred with each other as they both sought truth. And so when he started to spar with a guy who knew his stuff, uh, he started to realize that maybe he had just assumed those things were true, that they weren't actually true, that he had basically just been told those things. So when he started this investigation process into Christianity, like maybe my assumptions about it's true about Christianity aren't true, Then he started to turn the same kind of intellectually honest focus on his own religion, on Islam. And he had assumed a bunch of things were true there too. For example, he had assumed that Muhammad was the holiest man who ever lived. He assumed that Muhammad's life was worthy of emulation, that he had uh, basically his chastity and his peacefulness were beyond dispute or um, reproach. He believed that the Quran had been perfectly preserved and that it displayed miraculous knowledge. So remember, if you were here last week, Dan walked through what was an intellectually honest spiritual seeking process. It's a a process that's fair with the truth, an acronym. In other words, a process that rejects fear 
apathy, ignorance, and rigidity. And when Nabil goes after the truth with that kind of an attitude, both sets of assumptions come crumbling down. He explains, After three years of investigating the origins of Christianity, I concluded that the case for Christianity was strong and that the Bible could be trusted and that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead and claimed to be God. And then... Conversely, I found that Muhammad was not the man I had thought. Violence and sensuality dripped from the pages of his earliest biographies, the Hadith. The life stories of the man I revered as the holiest in history. And shocked by what I learned, I began to learn a lean on the Quran as my defense. But when I turned an eye there, the foundation there quickly uh, crumbled, just, or crumbled just as quickly. Overwhelmed and confused by the evidence for Christianity, and the weakness of the Islamic case, I began seeking Allah for help. And now we basically move from his intellectual seeking phase into the experiential phase. Now, before we get there, that's where we'll wrap. Before we get there, I want us to focus on, on what Nabil came to believe uh, was the truth about Christianity. What is the essential or mere Christianity that he came to believe was true? Listen, it is critical for everybody in this room to know that. Now, that applies to you no matter where you're at in the spiritual seeking process. So you might be investigating these matters. You might be a deeply long-term committed follower of Jesus. But you all, no matter where you're at, you need to know the truth claims of Christianity. See, if you're an investigator to faith today, you have to know what Christianity is. What is its essential truth propositions so that you can know what you're investigating, right? I mean, you just got to know what are, what are the propositions that you're being asked to believe. Now listen, you're focused then if you're in that process and if you're here this morning because someone invited you, I'm so glad that you're here. And they thought maybe this was a safe place for you to kick the tires on what is essential Christianity. If that's you, listen, you have to ask yourself, what are those things then that Christians uniquely believe? Because you may believe a bunch of things that Christians also believe. You might be a theist. You might believe in the existence of God. Most people do. Uh, you might believe in absolute standards of moral right and wrong, and Christians believe that too. So what you have to focus your search on is those things that Christians uniquely believe are true. So for Nabil, for example, he didn't need to be convinced that Jesus existed. The Quran had always told him that Jesus existed. He didn't need to be convinced even that Jesus was a great, uh, a great prophet or even that Jesus was born of a virgin. Muslims believe all those things. No, he needed to focus on those four things, the four things I've underlined. That's what he needed to focus his spiritual seeking process on. Now, I'm asking you a question. Have you, like Nabil, focused your search there? Or have you done something different? Like you focused it on not these core essentials, but on something surrounding the core essentials, non-essentials. And then what you've done is you've erected that. That's Christianity. And you've beat it like a dead horse. And so you think you've cast it off and you no longer need to consider it because, well, this version of Christianity clearly didn't hold water. But what version was that? Was it some narrow version, some version that you grew up with that was maybe deeply legalistic or held to uh, doctrinal positions that uh, made uh, core statements out of political uh, opinions or um, theological nuance? Maybe, and then you just rejected that, and you said, well, I've considered Christianity, and I've thrown it away. But really what you've done is not consider those things which all Christians believe at all times and all places. 
mere Christianity, essential Christianity. So it's very critical. Because maybe if you looked at common faith, the essential faith, what all Christians have believed at all times in all places, it would not be so easily dismissed. You couldn't so easily set up a straw man, beat it down, and think you've cast off Christianity for good. So you need to know the case for mere Christianity. How strong is it? You need to know. Not some narrow version of the faith. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus today, you also must know the essential truths of the faith. Why? Well, because Jude, the brother of Jesus, told you why. Jude, did you know Jesus had brothers? Yeah, he had brothers and sisters. One of them wrote a little letter that's tucked away in the middle of your New Testament, a a one-page wonder, we call it around here. It's a beautiful little letter, and and the the potent piece of it is really contained in two verses, verse 3 and 4. Jude says, I found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Tiny little verse, little sentence, two important assumptions being made. Number one, he says, you need to contend for the faith. Contend means fight for or defend. That assumes what? It assumes that the Christian faith will have opponents. The Christian faith from then all the way to now and into the future is going to have ideas that will come against it Ideas against which you must defend it. All right? So that's what he's saying. Expect worldview pushback, and you're going to need to contend for the ideas of the Christian faith. But also, here's the phrase, the faith delivered once for all assumes something as well, doesn't it? It assumes that the faith that we have, this core faith in Jesus, is a faith that stands for all people at all times in all places for all Christians. That's what it's saying. It's once for all. In other words, the core truths we must defend are immutable. They don't evolve over time. They don't, they're, they're laid down for all times. That's what Jude is saying. There's these core truths that are laid down for all times. Now, if you've examined the church, you know there's a lot of stuff that's changed in the last 2,000 years. I'll list a few things. Between you and the Christians in the first century, there's nobody here who owns any slaves. Right? There were a few in the first century who owned slaves. Uh, between you and the church in the first century, I bet you almost everybody here is of non-Jewish background. And almost 100% of the early Christians were all Jewish. That's lots of stuff that's changed. We're meeting in a church building. The early church in the first 150 years only met in homes. Uh, the style of worship, the kind of dress that we have, the rituals, the beliefs surrounding those rituals, that's all diversified amazingly in the last 2,000 years. But Jude is telling you that there is something about the faith that is not open to change, which makes sense given who we believe Jesus to be, which is going to come really clear this morning. Given that we believe that Jesus is who he said he was, and what did he, who did he say he was? He said, I and the Father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus comes to the world as the answer to the great religious longings of the world. You ask your spiritually seeking neighbor, what do you finally want when it comes to your spiritual life? And what they would want out of Christianity is something that was like, I just wish God would break through all the clouds, all the clutter, and he would just finally reveal himself so that we get through, cut through all the human opinion, and we could just see God. And here's Jesus. Shows up on the scene and says, when you've seen me, You've seen the Father. So then it starts to make sense, right, that these would be truths revealed once for all time because once God shows up on the scene, that revelation is the apex of revelation. You don't get higher than God, right? You don't progress beyond 
God when it comes to spiritual revelation. So after Jesus, the faith doesn't get delivered like five more times uh, in installments that just keep getting better and better. I'm looking at you, Joseph Smith. You know what I'm getting that? No. The founder of, of Mormonism. Like, we've got a New Testament, a brand new Testament, and, and the revelation just keeps getting better and better. No, no, no. Once you've got wine, you don't go back to beer, right? Uh, does that make sense? I've never drunk a lick of alcohol in my life. Is, is, that, a, is that a good illustration? So, uh, no. <laughs> Some beer drinkers over there. So, once you have the apex of revelation, you, you don't progress beyond that, except in application. And in applying these eternal truths, yes, the church has progressed in some cases beautifully in the last 2,000 years. If you change that core stuff, Judah's saying, you've invented another faith. That's not Christianity anymore. Okay, so we got why this matters. Uh, for outsiders to Christian faith, you have to know what is essential Christianity so that you know what you're investigating. You've got to know what you're being asked to accept. You've got to know what you're being asked to reject. For insiders to Christian faith, you have to know the essential core of Christianity as well for these four reasons. Number one, so that you know how to be and how to judge a Christian in good standing. That's what the creeds do, by the way. Creeds, and we're going to get to a primitive, beautiful creed from the Bible today, but what creeds do are they define who is a Christian in good standing and who's not. The second thing uh, this does is that you know how to identify false Christian teaching that attempts to change the faith into something else. So you're, you're conversant enough with your own faith so that you know, wait, wait, that doesn't match. Thirdly, so that you can recognize that kind of Christian teaching that is controversial but doesn't fundamentally change the core of the truth that's been revealed once for all time. Why does that help you? We'll talk about this as well. So that you can be gracious with those who will think differently than you on the non-essentials. And then lastly, you need to know this so that you know how to communicate it to somebody who's on the outside looking in. What is it that you believe? And if that would just stump you, like right now, you'd go, I, 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 I. That's why you need to know the truth. You must know what is core Christianity. So now let's go to the text, shall we? Let's go to the early church, and here's a creed that Paul uses and gives to a young church so they see what the essential truth is. 1 Corinthians, we'll begin in verse 1, uh, 15, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers, he says, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you unless you believed to no purpose. Literally, the Greek says in vain or in an empty way. Okay, so let's stop here, okay? So we're not getting to the creed yet. We've got to stop. This preamble matters, okay? He says gospel, this gospel that I, I handed off to you. Now, this gospel is a Bible word. It's a summary word, and it summarizes the good message about Jesus. When Christians say we talked about the gospel, that means we're summarizing the essential core of the Christian message. So when Paul says, I'm going to clarify the gospel that you came to believe, what's coming next, the clarification is a list of core essentials of Christian belief. But first, he tells you why it matters. Why does it matter? He says, on this you have taken your stand, and by it you are saved. So what he's saying is, this core set of truths matters to your eternal salvation. It matters to a human being getting reconciled to God. Now, you think that God shouldn't make reconciliation with himself uh, contingent on believing true things. 
Like, is God going to make salvation contingent on believing that the sun is the center of the solar system or that flat earthers all go to hell because they disbelieve, you know, the truth that the earth is round or something like that? No, there are some truths that are essential to reconciliation. And those of you who are involved in broken relationship know this. You can't reconcile with someone who will not acknowledge the truth, right? You can offer forgiveness all day long, but you cannot reconcile with someone who will not acknowledge the truth of certain things that have transpired between you. Truth matters to reconciliation. And these core truths that are going to be outlined matter to a person getting reconciled to God, without which they cannot be reconciled to God. So that's why it matters. Next verse. Verse 3. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Okay, no, we, still, we can't get to the creed yet. This verse is laden with importance. Verse 3. Two critical things here. Number one, for those of you in investigation mode, I want you to think about this. This scripture was written in 55 AD. Every scholar believes that, by the way. Believing and non-believing. Everybody agrees that, uh, that 1 Corinthians was written very early, like in about the mid-50s, maybe early 50s, okay? So what does that mean when he says, I passed on to you what I also received? What does that mean? That means that when he passed it on to them a couple of years prior to the writing of this, like he's reminding them, remember when we were face-to-face and I was planning the church, that I passed this stuff on to you, right? He's saying that it predates that moment. So when would Paul have received it? I gave to you what I received. And you know that it's different because you actually look, some of your translations will actually set apart the what follows, the creed that follows, as separate from the text because it now changes in style from Paul's normal prose. It changes to something that looks very creedal in formulation, a kind of rhythmic prose that was clearly meant to be memorized, a creed. And that tells you that it isn't Pauline. It wasn't unique to him. He received it. It is what he says it was. It was received. It's not his. But if he received it, when did he receive it? Well, he would have received it after his baptism, right? When did he get baptized? In 35. Almost 20 years before this. In Damascus. So now think about that as it relates to what you've probably thrown out there as an explanation for the crazy stuff that Christians believe about Jesus. They believe that he claimed he was God. All the stuff Nabil was investigating. They, claim, they believe that he claimed to be God. They believe that um, his death for, uh, was, was uh, payment for sin. They believe that he rose from the dead. And you've said to yourself, okay, these people aren't all insane. Uh, so uh, what explains this belief? Well, he probably got added, right? You know, like we've got legends about George Washington. What do we say he did? He... he uh, he said, I cannot tell a lie. And what did he do about the Delaware Americans? Help me out here. Um, George Washington, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln, and the, there's a tree cut, cut down. There's an act. All these legends, right? So, so you, you, we, know, we know that legends get added to the story afterwards, right? We know. So we say, that's how it happened. That's how it happened. About 150 years later, 200 years later, you know, people, you know, somebody had, you know, a thought. They said, you know, Jesus... Maybe he rose from the dead. And they said, yeah, because we love him so much. He probably ro- ro- rose from the dead. And that just, that just got part of the story later on. Friend, you cannot hold that view. Not reasonably. Why? Because as you're going to see, these core essential high views of Jesus were embedded from the very beginning. 
I gave to you what I received. When did I receive it? Almost right on top of the events after they happened, 35 AD. This is an amazing thing, friends. And so this myth idea just uh, breaks down under the force of the facts. All right, now, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to notice something else in this short little sentence. Paul has just created a pecking order of Christian truth. What I passed on to you, what I received, of most important. So now think about what he's passed on. I mean, just compile the letters of Paul. He's passed on a lot of stuff. He's passed on stuff about marriage and about money management, about truth-telling, about conflict resolution. He's passed on a lot of stuff. But what he says follows the gospel is the most important stuff. I'm passing on to you something that is most important. That implies that there are truths of the Christian faith that are less important than these, the ones that follow. Other beliefs in Christianity are not less true because they're less important. They're just less important. Now, let me just illustrate. Uh, if you want to know uh, about uh, the truths about my relationship with my wife, our relationship has been more than 30 years now, there are many things that you could say are true about our relationship. Lots and lots of truths, truth claims that you could make. Uh, it's true that I like to play sports, and she does not. It's true that I forget everything, and she remembers everything. It's true. It's true that we met in 1986. It's true that when I first saw her, I was totally smitten. Five foot three inches of hair and curves, man. It's like, whoa. Anyhow, moving on. It's true. It's true that she's introverted and I'm extroverted. It's true that we both like movies and books, and it's true that she's always had a higher GPA than me. It's true that we've raised two boys and now two girls. All these are truths about our relationship, but I will say this. The core truths of our relationship were established on August 20, 1988, when I vowed to love, honor, and cherish her for the rest of my life, when we declared that we were one flesh and that my devotion to her would mark me for the rest of my life. These are the most important things. You know why? Because every other truth about our relationship flowed from those. Every other truth flows from that truth. So it's just like that. If you can imagine the Christian set of truths being like a web rather than a monolithic block, right? It's a web with the most important things at the center, and therefore these other things clearly implied they are primary truths, and there must be secondary and tertiary truths, and so on. And they, they, that, that forms your Christian worldview like a web, and the things at the center are the things that critically define it. And so remember why we said you need to know the truth for investigators? We said it so that you know what you're investigating. And listen, some of you might have a hard time considering Christ, and you know why? Because you're, you've been tripped up on secondary issues, things that are on the outside of the web, not things that are on the inside of the web, by which Christianity stands or falls. You haven't been considering those things. You've been considering these other things, and you said to yourself, man, if Christians can't get their stuff together on baptism or Sabbath observance or birth control, why should I even consider Jesus? I'll tell you why. Because the core truths stand by good evidence. And maybe you should consider them. That's why. See, you've been tripping up on the secondary things. You're tripping up on the tertiary things. So now what you need to do 
is go to those things, those things of most importance. Investigate the case for those things that are at the center of the web. Then you can examine the truth and the right position on all the secondary things. Okay? And this will help you. Go after those things. Remember what Nabil underlined? It's like, here's the thing. I had to figure out whether this was true or this was true or this was true. Now, for you, follower of Jesus, I hope this one statement by Paul gives you some pause because some of you have never acted as if there were secondary matters. You've never acted as if there were disputable matters in the church. You were taught, perhaps, by some other church that every doctrine that your church held was of most importance. And that meant that if you disagreed on any point, that you disagreed with the whole. And if you didn't agree with every fine nuance of teaching, then you weren't a Christian. And friends, I think you were allowed by, by Paul himself to have a much, much more generous view. Some of you may be surprised to learn that the most important things, the most important things are simple, and they're actually quite narrow in scope, and they can be summarized in five verses. Not five pages, not five papers, not five books, five verses. And that's a good thing. You know why? Because it limits what you and I need to defend to a skeptical world. It just limits it down to those things. So, all right, enough preamble. What are those things? Verse 3. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas. That's the Aramaic form of Peter's name. That's Peter. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, some have died. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one abnormally born, he appeared also to me. So this is a beautiful creed, a summary statement of the gospel. This is the good message of Jesus. And you could summarize it in like five phrases. He came, Christ died for sin, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, Christ was seen. And guess what? This is truth that every Christian at all times and all places believes. This is truth that all Christians at all times and all places must contend for because without which there is no Christianity, as Paul will make clear later on in the same chapter. Now, obviously, these essentials are rich with deep meaning, and that's why theology books are written, right? Because we elaborate on what these things mean. For example, when he names Jesus the Christ in this entire creed, you notice he's called Christ and not Jesus. That implies a bunch of things, doesn't it? That Christ came. What, what does that mean? It means that uh, we don't just believe that a man named Jesus showed up in the first century. It means that we believe Jesus alone owns the messianic thumbprint of messiah because that's what the word christ means the word christ means messiah so jesus fits the bill of messiah this is the truth we believe guardian that jesus was the long-awaited messiah and what is the identity of the long-awaited messiah well you go old testament all the way to new and you see there's a very unique identity for messiah he is one with the ancient of days that he is a son of god that he shares the qualities of divinity with the Father. This is the core truth that guardians guard. That Jesus died for sin calls 
us to believe. We believe in the beautiful history of redemption as substitutionary grace according to Scripture. And what do you do when you go into those Scriptures? What do you find? We learn that the perfect lamb always stands in for the, for the sinner, for the guilty one. Just punishment is averted by a sacrifice. Now, how that gets done, Christians have debated on that for 2,000 years. How does that work? How does Jesus' death atone for sin? We debate about that. But that it atones for sin, we are absolutely certain this is the truth that guardians guard. And that Christ was buried. We believe that Jesus really died. Like he didn't merely swoon, right? He didn't just faint for a couple days and get thrown in a tomb and then revive somehow. No, he experienced the full fury of death on, on our behalf. It means that we believe he was put in a real tomb by Pontius Pilate's order, a grave that could be investigated. This is core truth, guardians. And you believe it if you come to believe in Jesus. We believe that Christ was raised. That means that that tomb is now empty. That means that we believe that he was raised bodily, not merely spiritually. Like, you know, maybe a wisp of Jesus, a ghost came out of that grave or something on the third day. No, we believe that a, a corpse was resuscitated on the third day. And what that does is that vindicates all of Jesus' claims, all of his deeds, everything he said about himself, and what he said about his coming again. This is truth, guardians, that we guard. And that Christ was seen. He was seen by many, by over 500 at the same time, most of whom at the time of writing were still alive to confirm the veracity of the story. And what does that do? Guardians, it means that we are forever building our faith on reason and evidence. That means that the centerpiece of our faith, listen to this, the centerpiece of our faith is not so much words on a page. What do you believe? Well, let me write it out for you. This doctrine, this philosophical idea, this value, this moral, no. Fundamentally, what you believe is not something that you think in your head. It's something that happened in history. That's what you believe. Christian doctrine is summarized, and this is unique among the world religions, going all the way back into Judaism. Biblical faith is built on history. It's built on events, not so much ideas. Ideas flow out of the events. And so you believe that God has come to crack creation and that he split our time in two. Every truth you believe about Christianity flows from an historical event. But now you see just these six verses, seeker. You know what the core truth of Christianity is. You know the most important things. So as you investigate the Christian faith, you know, you're not going to like focus in on what's the right way to celebrate the Lord's Supper. First questions are more like this. Did a man named Jesus really live in the first century? Do you have reason to believe that? What is the evidence that he really claimed equality with God? I mean, is there any evidence for that? Are the Gospels in any way reliable to confirm facts about the life of this man? Is there any evidence that he was buried under Roman uh, procur uh, procurator Pontius Pilate? Did, did, that, did that guy even live? Was there evidence that he was raised from the dead? That's where you focus your search. And believer, you got, or seeker, listen, you got a, an entire church cheering for you to be fair with the truth, to put away fear and apathy and ignorance, and rigidity, and go after that. And we believe further that there is another seeker in heaven, and he seeks reconciliation with you. Now, believer, 
I call you a believer because you believe these things. And guess who else? Every follower of Jesus who has ever lived believes these things with you. You are one with them in a holy Catholic church. You know what Catholic means, right? It doesn't mean the church based in Rome. Catholic means universal, and you are one with every person who's ever claimed that as their worldview. You are one with them. Now, it's true that many people will claim that and not be genuine followers. Jesus predicted that would be the case. Many will come after, and they will call, my, call themselves my followers and do things in my name, and I don't really know them. So there are many people who will claim that who aren't true followers, but there's no true follower who didn't claim that. So now there are other beliefs, right? Not listed on this list of universal things that we must contend for. Truths delivered once for all. For example, how should we baptize people? What mode should we use? How should we think about the Virgin Mary? How should we interpret the first chapter of Genesis about creation? How should we take communion? How should we organize the leadership structure of the local church? Christians who differ on these things, they're all over the map on these things. And other times we're debating them, and I'm sure sometimes we're debating things that there is a right and a wrong answer, and we should go after it and contend with one another for what our marching orders truly reveal. Other times we're debating issues of, of method, and it really has nothing to do with our message. And you know what that means? That means that you can be generous with people who think differently than you on secondary issues. I'm now the leader of MAPA. I got, uh, I, I got the chair this year of Marysville Area Pastors Association. I cannot lead that organization without embracing everything I'm saying to you today, friends. I can't em embrace my brothers and sisters from different streams and different traditions on all these secondary issues and, and, and believe and work with them as if we are one. I can't focus on all those things and say, well, we can't be one unless we agree on all the issues, primary, secondary, tertiary, and so on. But man, I tell you, it is a beautiful thing when brothers and sisters get together from across their streams and from across their traditions. And we, as we did in communion this morning, we recite the Apostles' Creed and we declare in word and in song, we are one in Christ who came, who died for sin, who was buried, who was raised from the dead, and who was seen and who is coming again. Powerful unity around these core truths. And you can experience it with your brothers and sisters from other churches in this town and around the world. So listen, the different stakes are there, right? If you don't believe that the sun UV rays can affect your skin, you might get a sunburn. If you don't believe that drinking battery acid is bad, you'll die, okay? There are different stakes involved in different truth claims, obviously. The stakes involved in secondary matters is lower, so you can lower the tone when dealing with people who take a different view. The stakes involved in primary matters is higher, literally, your soul is on the line, Paul says. Ah, but does that mean you can raise your tone and be a jerk? No. Next week, that's the topic. How do we hold our truths? Now, let's end with Nabil. Speaking of what's riding on these tr uh, truths, we return to Nabil's experiential phase. You know, it's not enough, right, that you, you, uh, uh, um, you crunch down the truths on mere paper, Right? Some of you uh, saw the, um, uh, the movie Hidden Figures. Anybody see the movie Hidden Figures, right? They're doing all this math, right? And it's all true. It's got to be true, right? If it's math and math applies on earth, it applies in space, and, and they're working out trajectories, and it's all this advanced math. 
But eventually, they got to strap a human being to a great big firecracker and send them into space. And, and then, then truth is actualized in that moment, right? The same thing must be true in the Beals situation. And so he describes his move into experiential faith this way. The work of my intellect was done. I had opened the way to his altar. So apologetics has this role in the seeking, the seeking person's life. But I had to decide whether I would approach it. If I did, and if I really wanted to know God, I had to cast myself upon his mercy and love, relying completely upon him and his willingness to reveal himself to me. If it was true, I needed to act as if it was true. And so that's when Nabil started to ask God for a dream or a vision. And one day he received a powerful dream that broke his remaining emotional, spiritual resistance. And Dan described one of the visions he got. This was a dream that he got when he got into that experiential place. He said in, in the vision, I was standing at, a, at the threshold of a strikingly narrow door, watching people take their seats at a wedding feast. Everyone was waiting to start, and I desperately wanted to get in, but I was not able to enter. On the other side was my friend David. That's David Wood, his Christian friend, right? On the other side was my friend David. And I said to him through the door, I thought we were going to eat together. And in my dream, he said, you never responded. And then I woke up. And I knew God was telling me that room was the kingdom of God. And I was on the outside because I had never responded to the truth. Then I shared this with my friend, and he revealed something more. When he, when he shared it with David Wood, he said, David, uh, David said, Nabil, do you realize what God has revealed to you? He has shown you a parable of Jesus. And he flipped in their Bible to Luke chapter 13, verse 22. It's the parable of the narrow door. And there's a narrow door, and there's the feast of the kingdom on the other side. And the narrow door represents this low-hanging door of faith where one enters the kingdom through humility and repentance and rejection of our own way and our own thinking and our own management of our own lives. And God had revealed this to Nabil who had never read Luke in his life. He'd done a lot of investigating, had never read the book of Luke. And wow, what a shock to realize that God was drawing him, wooing him and telling him where he stood just on the outside, looking in until truth gets actualized. And friends, that's what faith is. It's not mere assent to a body of ideas. Do you understand this? Faith gets actualized when you walk through the door. How did that look like for Nabil? He finally took his stand and actualized the truth of the gospel when he said, I realized I could no longer hold my past. He's talking about Islam, my values which I had believed without good reason. I realized that was not the truth. And I had to surrender to Jesus. So I asked the Holy Spirit to change me. And after that, I was shocked. Literally feeling as though I was being electrocuted. I was stuck in that position for 10 minutes, not able to move. And when I finally moved, the world had changed around me. I don't know how else you describe a moment like that, friends, except to say that he was born again truth is like that, friends. It's got its intellectual propositions. This is true. This is true. This is true. But it just remains words on a piece of paper until you, in faith, receive. And you actualize truth in your life by an act of faith. 
if you're on the outside looking in, friend, you'd recognize yourself in Nabil's dream. Well, maybe today is your day. Maybe today is a day where you would step across the line of faith and you would humbly receive Jesus, whom you have come to believe is the way and the truth and the life as your way and your truth and your life. And it's very simple. I mean, it's very simple. You just receive him in an act of prayer and we can do it right now. I can give you some words. So let's bow our heads, shall we? And um, seeker, beloved seeker, understand there is a seeker in heaven who's been seeking you your whole life, your whole life. And maybe you've been kicking the tires on this thing. You've been investigating faith. And maybe today is a day that you would cross the line with words that would go something like this. In your own words, in your own heart, you would say, Lord Jesus, I see that you're the truth. And what I used to believe, well, clouded with half-truths and a lot of lies, and now I'm going to respond. I'm going to receive you as the way and the truth and the life. And Jesus, by you, set me free from my sin. The burden I've carried into this room and the shame I've carried about my past set me free by your truth, of the truth of your grace. And Lord Jesus, bring your Holy Spirit to my heart that I might live, that I might live in you and live for you. And today would be the day I am wholly yours and your truth will be actualized in my life. I pray this in your name. Amen. And you are a child of God. It's a beautiful thing what Jesus does in people's lives. And if you have a life-altering moment that happens today, if that happens next week, if it happened last month, tell somebody, would you? Tell somebody with a lanyard on, a staff member, or someone who brought you to our church. We want to hear what God's doing in your life. And we have a chance after this to do extended, so that's in two minutes. We'll have a little talkback time, time for question and answer. Maybe you've got to plumb this Jesus thing deeper. You've got to go deeper in investigation before you can make a commitment like that. We get it. So stick around and extended. We can have a chance to do that. And come back next week when we wrap up this series on truth. Invite a friend. We would love to have them. See you all next week.